It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, March 8th, 2016. We're going to switch it up a little bit this week. We're going to do our light episode today and normal episodes on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. A little bit of a scheduling conflict with me. As I desperately try to catch up. Moving is, yeah, no bueno. It's not a lot of fun. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ. This is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We actually take the time to open up our Bibles and compare with the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolates, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complexes, those who we need to be listening to, whose books we need to be buying, whose curriculum we need to be studying instead of the Bible in our small group Bible studies. Yeah, and over and again, we test to see if what they're saying squares with what God's Word says, And shock of shocks, yeah, no, it generally doesn't. So part of the way in which you learn good, sound, biblical exegesis, good discernment, is you need to be exposed to good biblical teaching. This is why here at Fighting for the Faith, we not only cover the bad and the ugly, we also cover the good. And we've been working our way through a series of lectures given by Pastor Jeremy Rohde of Faith Lutheran Church, Capistrano Beach, California, as he's been working his way through the book of Ecclesiastes. We're up to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 18, and we'll get into parts of chapter 6 with today's lecture. So let's get to it. It says, There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. You don't want that to happen, so come support Soldiers of the Cross (laughs) next week. Well, welcome back to Ecclesiastes. We went through chapter 5, at least the bulk of it, where uh, there is discussed religion and, surprisingly, a number of dangers and difficulties therein. We looked at uh, the role and place of government, Hearing Solomon lament, uh, this would be verses 8 through 9, hearing him lament bureaucracy, apparently existed all the way back then, and also remind us that uh, what is good for the land is to have a king or a ruler committed to cultivated fields. Then we started looking at money, and if you look at verse 10, it's sort of a a verse that summarizes the content. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity or meaninglessness. Can everyone hear me okay? Yep. All right, so if you just look at this, then you say the pursuit of religion, the pursuit of government that is leading humanity, maybe even serving humanity, in a leadership role, the pursuit of money, 
these three pursuits or toils all fall under the heading of vanity. They're good in and of themselves, but they are not the end-all, be-all. They don't answer our deepest questions, our deepest needs, our deepest longings. In fact, we find that there are perils involved in each and every one of them. Then we uh, also recounted this. Uh, if you look at verse 13, this is what I quoted to you just a moment ago, chapter 5. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came. And he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. All right. And that is a nice summary statement because that's true not only of mammon, of wealth, but indeed of every pursuit and toil. Of every pursuit and toil. Again, viewing this, as Solomon views it, as under the sun. In context, this applies specifically to riches, but the statement itself is broad enough that all toils are viewed this way. You don't get to take anything with you. You toiled for wisdom, your wisdom dies with you. You toiled for pleasure, your taste buds are gone. So is your brain and your ability to enjoy pleasure. You toiled for greatness. You die and you don't enjoy it anymore. Maybe your name is left on the building for how long? Okay. Um, once you've done your religious thing, you've uh, earned all your gold stars, sacrificed the right sacrifices, you die and that's it. And in the end, you weren't any more righteous than anyone else, only relatively so. All right, and so also serving humanity, we've recounted that, that uh, a number of times that not only do you come, you pour out yourself for humanity and then you're gone and then they don't even have the decency to remember you. And then we just repeat our same mistakes over and over, of course, as the centuries roll on. All right. <clears throat> now, in verse 18, I don't think we've covered, I think, in fact, this is where we left off. We get some optimism from uh, Ecclesiastes. And again, he's going to cut that middle road for us. This is one of, I think, the best arguments to say that, look, Solomon isn't suffering from some sort of psychological depression, nor is he profoundly pessimistic or locked in despair or unbelief or all these things that we were told. Rather, what you see him saying repeatedly is, okay, let's look at each one of the toils. Let's look at each one of the pursuits that you can spend your life on. Let's point out the good in them and the not so good. The good in them and yet also their incompleteness or inability to fulfill you and your life. All right, so that's, that's this next section then. Verse 18, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Right? So, that's your lot. You have the few days that God has given you. Better enjoy them. Is that wisdom? Of course it is. Is that exactly happy or uplifting or something you want to embroider on a pillow or 
immortalized in one of those motivational posters? Not really. It's one of those mitigated joys, and it's one of those middle ground principles that you see, sort of the pleasure principle uh, of, hey, look around you, realize it's all gift. Realize it's all gift. What you eat, what you drink, is gift. So find enjoyment. The toils that God has given, find enjoyment. Because life is short, so you may as well have some joy while you're going through it. Even still, God has set your life such that it is short, and God has made this the lot of humanity. Which, of course, if you're biblically literate and if you zoom out to the bigger picture, you realize that this lot that he's given humanity is simply another word for the curse, for the wages of sin being death. In, in the world that God originally creates, he doesn't create that to be our lot, nor does he create us to be such that we live a few days, die, and are forgotten. In the world that God creates in Genesis, there is no death. The human race marches happily along. There is no lot, no portion. And so there's no requirement to say, hey, wake up, people, and enjoy. <laughs> Realize what you have. Realize that it's a gift from the Lord. Realize that this life is short. So, hey, eat, drink, and be merry for... Uh... Bob almost got assassinated back there. <laughs> what, did that, what did that whiteboard have against you, Bob? <laughs> <laughs> and when the whiteboard of Siloam fell on Bob, we asked, was he a greater sinner than the rest of us? That this befell him? Okay, I totally lost my place in train of thought. Well, it's not your fault. I mean, you know. That, that is your lot. <laughs> Did somebody say that is your lot in life? That's great. <laughs> Okay, well, that sort of sums us up on verse 18. Uh, verse 19, the thought continues. Now, I want you to <laughs> enjoy the complexity of what follows because it is complex and it is uh, Solomon seesawing back and forth. Again, establishing for us this middle ground of what to enjoy and how to look at life, but also, again, establishing the parameters and saying, it is what it is. That doesn't mean it's great. It just is what it is. Realize what it is. Enjoy it for what it is. But don't you dare think for a second that you're going to have your soul's fulfillment in this. All right, that's, that's what we're going to see. So look at verse uh, 19. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and the power to enjoy them, that's key, and to accept his lot, that's key, and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. Now, it's lost to us because we're going through this piecemeal week after week, but it's not three chapters earlier, do you recall, where Solomon himself, way back in chapter 2, verse 18, has said, I hated all my toil. Now, you have to keep that in mind now when he says, yeah, Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and the power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. 
And I would, I would submit to you here that what Solomon is saying is that this gift comes and goes. It's not a static thing. It's not just bequeathed to you as an individual that you will forever and for your entire life enjoy your toil. Rather, quite like Solomon, you will find yourself hating your toil, <laughs> particularly when you look at its limitations, when you're viewing it as under the sun and the logic therein, and you're seeing the pointlessness and the vanity of it all, right? You know, that bag of chips falls off the shelf. It doesn't matter if I pick it up or not. You know, uh, it doesn't matter if I hit that deadline or not, really. Um, Okay, so uh, we have to remember the larger context of Solomon's words. And he's pointing out simply all the gifts that God gives, mitigated within the frame, within the lot that he has assigned to us. All right, and one of his gifts would be your ability to rejoice in your toil, all the while seeing with eyes open its limitations. Now, this power to enjoy, that phrase is important. It comes up in a verse uh, nearby here. So we'll keep that in our mind. Verse 20 is a strange verse. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Now in context, what is the joy in his heart? Wealth and possessions and the power to enjoy them and accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. That is the gift of God. So the man who has joy in his heart has these things and God keeps him occupied with these things so that he doesn't have time to pay attention <laughs> to the, the rest. <laughs> I mean, here, this is what's so strange about it. For he will not much remember the days of his life. Sort of flies in the face of, you know, memories and, you know, the importance of why do you go on vacations? Why do you go on trips? Why do you keep those great big photo albums? Why do you have hard drives full of albums and then backups and then backups of the backups? And um, why do you have all that stuff? You know, Solomon isn't rejecting memories outright, but it is fascinating that he says a man will not much remember the days of his life if God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. I think is a fascinating way of thinking about moving through life. Instead of moving through life, sort of like if this is the great timeline of your life, ignore that it's headed toward the grave. That is our lot. But if that's the great timeline of our life, you know, there's one way that people go down that timeline, and very often it's like this. Right? Always looking backwards, remembering much the days of his life. Of course, we could say also not living the days of his life he's actually in, or looking to the future, but primarily living in the past. Now, Solomon would see this in the context of this verse as a curse, as something to be avoided, as not a good way to proceed through life. This is the gift of God, these things mentioned in verse 20. For a man will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Okay? So, we might try to summarize what Solomon's saying. Too much looking back. As you go down the timeline of life, not good. Too much looking forward. You're not going to have any joy. You look too much forward, you're just going to see the grave, the grave, and the grave. Rather, to 
live presently is in view here. And not simply as some abstract, new-agey sort of thing, but fleshed out in verse 19 to see what God has given you. To open your bank account and realize that that is all from the Lord. To see what He's given you as a human being in terms of your abilities, your mind, your reason, your energy, okay? uh, your feelings, your compassion, whatever He's given you, to realize that these are gifts from the Lord. And then to have the God-given gift of the power to realize that these are gifts and then enjoy them as gifts. Now, that sounds pretty easy. But in practice, it's not. Because very often these things strike us and our fallen nature as being not gifts, but burdens, responsibilities, law. Take one example. Children are a gift from the Lord. Are they? (laughs) There is a tension. There is a tension. You know. (laughs) Jesus says, you know, if a son asks his father for a fish, the father won't give him a serpent. (laughs) Right? It's not how God gives gifts. Yet he gives you a child, and that child becomes your master and your slave driver. And, you know, you find yourself... uh, Well, you know, it's like if you're a pet owner, it's not that different, right? (laughs) I mean, in in this way at least, that if an alien came down and said, uh, you know, take us to your leader, you know, we take him to President Obama or whatever, and uh, no, the leader on the end of your leash, you follow around him and pick up his poop, you feed him whenever he wants, you open the door for him and close, right? It's that kind of irony. Okay, so so the gifts God gives can by virtue of our fallen nature, be viewed solely in the way of law. So that our blessings are curses. That's the way our old Adam receives them. And the truth is, as we are simul eustus at Bacadur, as we have a new man and an old man at war within us, we see in God's gifts, in His hand, both blessing and curse. That's just how it is. Alright? But to have the power to enjoy these things as gifts from the Lord. This is a great blessing and a great benefit and a preferable way to enjoy this lot, these few days that the Lord has given you. Much more preferable to view them as gifts from the hand of the Lord as opposed to laws and burdens and responsibilities and the end of freedom, you know. And, you know, that's Luther's criticism of the old uh, monasteries where people cut themselves off from the vocations that God has called them to and given them the relationships to their family and to others within society. They cut themselves off from all of that in the name of religion. That's what's so bitter and ironic to Luther. In the name of religion, they toss all those calls from God aside and go out and create their own call and their own duty in the form of a monastery, right? And then assert, and then have the audacity to assert that that's more God-pleasing than the God-given tasks, gifts, that, he, that they left back at home. You know, if you want to live like a uh, 
like a religious, like a spiritual, like an ascetic, like a monk, then remain in the vocation that God has given you and live like one. You know, for parents, that means the call to prayer isn't some monk chanting at 3 a.m. It's your child screaming. <laughs> That's the call to prayer. That's the call to go serve God through by serving your neighbor. Right? Uh, you, don't, you don't scrub the floor uh, to get merits before God. You go and scrub the floor because there's crusty macaroni on it. You know? That's, that's the gift, the task that God's given us to realize this, His great blessing, His great wisdom. And to realize, too, then, that there's this war within us. There's the old flesh that sees it as burden and responsibility and hates it and rebels against it and rejects it. And then there is the new man within us who is striving to see and realize and have these things as gifts, as training, as discipline, as broadening and expanding us and having these things as from the hand of the Lord. Okay, so that's sort of what's in view here uh, at the close of chapter 5. You know, that way when we are busy with our vocations, um, God is keeping us occupied with joy in our heart in such a way that we're not paranoid about the future nor living mournfully in the past, but wholly present, wholly receiving His gifts and enjoying the lot, the few days of life that God gives to us. All right, any questions or comments before we move on? These themes carry on into chapter 6. Remember, the chapter breaks are artificial, so are the verses often. So uh, this whole argument just carries right along, but it's a stopping point if you have any thoughts. Okay, let's go a little further then. Chapter 6, verse 1. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet, here's the key, God does not give him power to enjoy them but a stranger enjoys them. Someone else enjoys them. Whether that be the next generation who receives the inheritance, or whether that be the people around him, his family, maybe friends who benefit. Right. Now compare that to what we read prior, chapter 5, verse 19, where we see listed among the gifts, not only wealth and possessions, but power to enjoy them. That is a gift from God. Now, keep in mind, when you think of power to enjoy the gifts that God has given you, temper that, balance that with what's come immediately before. For example, verse 10 of chapter 5, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. We're going to see this play out in the next verses. We can make a difference and a distinction You know, we're called to enjoy these things as gifts, all the while realizing that they don't ultimately satisfy. Like I said, we're going to see that poignantly in the next couple of verses. We'll dwell on this idea of being satisfied. But we need to see that the power to enjoy these things is a gift from God. 
But what if you lack it? What if you hate your life? What if your favorite verses in this whole book are those verses that, uh, I thought the dead are all, who are already dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive, but better than both is he who has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. In other words, it would be better to not even been born. That's how bad I hate my life. All right, so what does this mean then? This means that if you want the power to enjoy what God does give and what you do have, then it's a gift from God, so we must ask God for that. Ask God for that. You know, we have a similar prayer in church, and uh, the longer I'm alive, the more it makes sense to me, you know, where we pray... um, Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. What, did I lose it? <laughs> yeah, I lost it. You know, I know it in my head that I'm saved. Okay, I know in my head that Christ has done this for me, this great and amazing thing. I know that God is my Savior, but what I've lost is the ability to enjoy that, the power to enjoy that. We pray God would return to us, restore in us joy over our salvation. Now, if we lose joy over our salvation, are we in danger of losing joy over everything else? Of course. Of course. So this, these words of Solomon also call us into prayer because when we realize that we're not enjoying the things in life, then the idea is not, well, you need to go to a self-help seminar. Here, read this book, The Ten Steps to Better Enjoying Your Life. But rather we pray to God because we realize that this is a gift He gives us to be able to enjoy. To be able to realize that uh, the flowers of the field are here today and gone tomorrow, but while they're here today, they sure are beautiful. Would you like to go look at them? That's a gift of God. Okay, well, Solomon says here... um, and he paints a picture, you know, of, of something that would just be probably a percentage, a swath of individuals. Uh, you know, Luther would say this is the miser. And yet, look how he prefaces this way back in verse 1. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. So in one form or another, probably you're going to experience this at some point in your life. God gives you wealth and possessions, whatever he does give you, and honor, so that he lacks nothing at all, that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. Right. Now you see here too how this is sort of iconic or uh, parabolic because of this line, lacks nothing of all that he desires. Who's that? You know, Who's wealthy enough that he lacks nothing of all he desires? So it's a little bit parabolic. He's painting the extreme example in order to show, show, like, look, you can have the whole world, you know, on a silver platter, but if you don't have the power to enjoy it, it's worthless. That power to enjoy it comes from God. Right? Then he concludes to say, this is vanity. Of course it is. The all is vanity, and that's what he's demonstrating. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil.
All right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break, when we come back, the balance of today's lesson on the book of Ecclesiastes with Pastor Jeremy Rohde. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, 
I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor never actually spends time working his way through important biblical texts like the book of Ecclesiastes. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. You can partner with us by visiting our website, FightingForTheFaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute, well, an amount of money that you choose. That's right. You pick your rank in our crew. Lowest rank is uh, Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Mate at $24.95, Master Gunner at $49.95, and then Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. This is a great way to support us, by the way. And uh, so if you're not already a member of our crew, head over to our website and pick your rank. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Here is the balance of today's uh, lesson from Pastor Jeremy Rohde as he's working his way through parts of Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and chapter 6. Here we go. Now he's going to paint another picture, actually a couple more pictures, that aren't really realistic, but they're meant to drive home the point. Verse 3, If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it, that is the stillborn child, comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Which would be better than having your name renowned and having hundreds of children who pass on your name and bear your name. 
That's a stunning statement. To have all this stuff and not be satisfied with it, well, it would be better if you weren't even born. Now, this is sort of the complexity and the meditative quality of Ecclesiastes. You've got to chew on this verse. It's an invitation to chew on this verse. And there's no just hand, here it is, this is what it means, this is what it is. Okay? Because superficially you might glance at it and say, you know, the message is just you got to be satisfied. And if you're not satisfied, then you're, it'd be better to be a stillborn. It'd be better to have never even lived. Okay, well that has its degree of truth, its degree of resonance in our lives. You know, Paul uses the word content. I have learned to be content in all things, uh, whether having much or little. Right? But now continue on with me. There's a, there's a deeper way of reading this verse, but we don't get to it until a couple verses later. Verse 6. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, a two thousand year old man, yet enjoy no good, and that's and then you see the dash there, yet enjoy no good. You're supposed to just understand that that would be the same lot as the previous man or a continuation of his lot. That is, it'd be better to not even have been born. Okay? And then he like interrupts himself here. That's the dash. Do not all go to the one place. Now, I would argue that that dash is all important, and the next question is all important. It marks a shift in his thinking. The evidence of that is in the next line. Because if do not all go to one place, that's a different thought, isn't it? I mean, so far track with his thought, with his thinking, with the examples he brings up. Okay, a guy who has the whole world but can't enjoy it. Better off to not even be born. A guy who lives forever and can't even enjoy it. Better off to not, you know, to not even been born. Then he pulls out the great equalizer. Do not all, do not both go to the same place. They do. And I think that's a shift in his thinking. Look at verse 7. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. Now, just compare those words with what we read before. Look back at, at three, at verse 3. Now, this mitigates against the superficial reading I just gave you. Right? Like I said, you've got to chew on these verses and chew on them and chew on them. Verse 3, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, well, it'd be better to not even be born. Verse 7, all the toil of man is for the mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. In other words, if you were to draw the conclusion of the rhetoric of Solomon up to this point, only worth living if you're satisfied, yet no one is ever satisfied. Better to live a life where you are satisfied, and yet the reality is you'll never be fully satisfied. And that takes us all the way back to those earlier themes where he said, I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both, he who is he who has not yet been. 
and has not seen the evil deeds that are under the sun. Right, so in the big picture, what are we looking at? Solomon's steering us down the middle road masterfully. This is what life is. It's but a breath. It's but a lot. Enjoy it. Pray to have, that God gives you the power to enjoy it. Be content in it. Be satisfied insofar as you can be satisfied and yet realize that you will not be fully satisfied. Because all the toil, toil of religion, the toil of serving your fellow man, the toil of greatness, the toil of uh, pleasure, the toil of wisdom, all of this ends up being toil that is for a man's mouth. And yet his mouth, his appetite, is not satisfied. Now this itself is a profoundly fun line because, according to Solomon, if all the toil of a man is for his mouth. If I said to you, all my toil is for Pastor Hodel, then Pastor Hodel would be what? My boss, my master, and I would be his slave, his servant. So now look at this. All the toil of a man is for his mouth. We are all bound in slavery, each and every one of us, to this. Because you have to eat. And how are you going to eat? Only if you work. How are you going to work? Pick up a toil. Pick up a toil. Okay, so we are slaves to our mouths, and our mouths are not gracious masters. But rather, even as we are working, you know, I work, everything I do is to serve this mouth. My mouth is not satisfied. You know, I feast on Thanksgiving until my mouth says no more. And the next day, my mouth says, go get the leftovers, right? Our mouths are never satisfied, or they're only satisfied for a moment, and that's it. So Solomon's pointing this out, rather ironic, rather ironic. And I think maybe the, the bookend of this whole section where he's taken us down the middle course is finally, ultimately realize that you won't be satisfied, that the mouth is not satisfied, that all your toils are to serve this master, and this master won't ever be satisfied. Which, of course, is profound. It's profound biblically. The idea of hunger. Right? You have to eat in order to live. It used to not be this way. In the garden, God didn't make it that way. He said, eat of any tree of the garden except this one. Now, in the Garden of Eden, if you eat or don't eat, you're not going to die. Because what causes death? Sin. The wages of sin. Sin is what kills you. Sin is why you have to eat. Sin has bound us in, the slave, in slavery to our mouths, to eating. Now, why would God put a curse right there? Because the first sin was right there. The first sin was one of eating. Really? You want your mouth to be your God? So you shall have it. Your mouth will be your God. And your God will never be satisfied with your worship. Now that's the law side of it. And so it is to this day that we must eat. And as a consequence of the fall, things must die for us to eat. 
So even the bios, even the earthly life we have under the sun is a life that is taken from other living things, right? Um, the plant, uh, you know, in Eden, whereas you have the plants that don't ever die, simply eat their fruit, we still have that to a degree. Even still, many of the plants we eat must die. And, of course, all of the animal life we eat dies in order to support our lives. Okay? That turkey you had had to die. You had to eat death in order to live. And that is a curse. That's part of the curse. All right, now, this is why eating is such a big deal throughout the scriptures. But you see eating over and over and over again, don't you? And you see meals that are strange and bizarre and have hints uh, and foreshadowing. Uh, You have this mysterious priest named Melchizedek who sits down with Abraham and and feeds him with bread and wine. Christ is later called the priest in the order of Melchizedek. And what meal does he feed us with? Bread and wine. Bread that is his body and wine that is his blood. You also have a feast uh, instituted with Passover, right? When you eat the lamb and paint its blood on your doorway, then the angel of death shall pass over you. Direct connection then to the Lord's Supper, which is on the night of Passover. You have the blood prohibition in Leviticus. You shall not eat the blood. The life is in the blood. Hundreds and hundreds of years, you shall not eat the blood. You shall not eat the blood. You shall not eat the blood. The life is in the blood. Then that night before Jesus sheds his blood, he says, take drink. This is my blood. Why? The life is in the blood. Okay. You have... uh, At the Sinaitic Covenant, you have Moses and others go up to the top of the mountain and meet with God, and there they eat with God, a foreshadowing of our supper, where in the New Covenant, we eat with God. Um, You have Adam and Eve who sin with their mouth by eating, and then you have the new Adam, not Christ yet, The new Adam, Noah, when the whole human race is wiped out and you have Noah, and he sins with his mouth not by eating but by drinking. So you have two Adams, if you will. Okay, You have the first Adam who screws up by eating fruit and the second Adam, Noah, who screws up by drinking wine. Too much of it. What happens to the first Adam as soon as they eat? They realize they are naked. And what happens to the next Adam, Noah, as soon as he drinks the wine, he gets naked. Okay, so there's a big problem with eating and drinking. This curse from Adam and Eve goes all the way through the history of humanity and is written into each and every one of us. That's Solomon's point. Okay, you have to eat or you will die. You have to eat or you will die. And then we get hints of the answer, as I've pointed out, all the way through the Old Testament. You get statements like, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word proceeds from the mouth of God. Then you have the Word becomes flesh and dwells among us. And then you have the Word become flesh, saying, Take, eat, 
Take, drink my flesh and my blood for you for the forgiveness of your sins. It all ties together in the new covenant, the Lord's Supper. Because the human race fell by eating. So by eating, Christ has us restored. We ate and sinned. Now Christ says, eat, drink, you are forgiven. That first eating brought death. This second eating brings life. All right, that brings us up to speed. And that is all then the broader context. Uh, again, if we see Ecclesiastes painting the silhouette of Christ, then we see the answer to this verse, verse 7, in the Lord's Supper. All the toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. Finally, we come to our Lord Jesus and receive in our mouths that which does satisfy, the only thing that satisfies. The Word become flesh, His flesh and blood, for our forgiveness, for the satisfaction of our sins. Okay. Let's just uh, close out then this paragraph, verse 8. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? Some, right? Better to be wise than an idiot. And yet, they both go to the same place. So they answer this question, for what advantage has the wise man over the fool? Something, some advantage, but not much. Same with the next question. And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? In other words, uh, conduct himself, you're poor, but you, but you still understand how to be respectable, how to conduct yourself how to fraternize with other people who are better off than you, etc. All right. Well, what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Something. He does have something. Better is that poor man than the poor man who doesn't know how. But in the end, on final analysis, he doesn't have much. And that's the point. Okay, verse 9. Better is the sight of the eyes, is a Hebrew saying. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. In other words, it is um, the sight of the eyes here means to actually have. Better is it to actually have than to be always looking and never have. Um, our saying is uh, it's better to have a bird in hand, right, than two in the bush. That's the parallel statement. It's better to have than to be searching and searching and searching then why does he say this also is vanity and striving after the wind? Okay, think about it this way. It's better to be wise than a fool, but they both die. It's better to be a poor man who knows how to conduct himself than a poor man who doesn't, but they both die. It's better to have than to not have, but they both die. It's all vanity. Because even satisfaction itself is elusive, and in finality, we can't say that we are fully satisfied. Rather, the appetite that drives us on, the seeking, the desiring meaning and purpose, the trying to figure it all out, is vanity and striving after the wind. And then again, we see how little control we have, like way back in that poem, uh, 
you know, a time to be born, a time to die. We mistake that as a poem about human agency. I choose the times. I choose when it's time to be born. I choose when it's time to be die. Is, are either of those true? No. That poem means the exact opposite. Those times are set and appointed for us. We have zilch control. We have the illusion of control. And this same theme comes out now here. Whatever has come to be has already been named. Here, obviously, God is in view and becomes explicitly in view in the next lines. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. So what if you were to take this appetite, this vanity, and say, this is what makes man great. And he's always searching, always striving, always exploring, always wanting more. Isn't this the edge of the knife of our evolutionary process? Isn't this good and great? Doesn't this show our agency and our drive and yeah, everything that the human race is? You know, cue the Olympic ceremonies. We are this. We are the world. Okay? And in contrast to that, no, you're not satisfied. And in fact... Whatever has come to be has already been named. God has set the limitations. And it is known what a man is. So you're not going to evolve to this point where God has to say, Oh my, the human race is, what is this? God's already set the bounds. He already knows what man is. And man is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. Man will never evolve to the point, individually or corporately, to be able to strive and dispute with God and win that argument. There is, in fact, one who is stronger than man. Verse 11, the more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? Here, too, in this Advent season, we can see a contrast with those same words I brought up before. The Word became flesh. The Word, singular, in Him is contained all things. What's the opposite of that? Fallen humanity. Words. Words, 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 and noise, 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 and, um, you know, the books are written, and more and more and more are written, words are spoken, and the Internet is supposedly our latest, greatest peak. And yet, what is it? It's a great source of information. It's also just... Noise. Words and words and words. Okay, and in contrast to that, you have one word of God, the word of God, become flesh. The more words, the more meaninglessness. More vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. Now that, you just went on a roller coaster loop. And you go, what? Because Solomon just told us what is good for a man. Didn't he? Didn't he just say that it's good for a man? Look, verse 18. Behold what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of the life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Verse 12, 
after chewing and processing and going through this whole thing and thinking about it, he says, for who knows what is good for a man? For who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his meaningless life which he passes like a shadow? It's as if he puts a big asterisk behind everything he's just said and relative insofar as it's comparative. Better to be wise than a fool. Better to enjoy than not enjoy. And then on final analysis, we all go to the same place. So, hey, pick your own course. Doesn't much matter. Happy thoughts. But that's what the law does, you know. It levels it all in the end. So that we are great and least in our own eyes and great and least in stature and status that the world gives. And yet before God, we're all absolutely nothing from the greatest to the least. We are debtors. We are beggars all. And no one will be able to dispute with God on that day. And this gets to it. The limitation of humanity. uh, This final clause. Verse 12. For who can tell man... What will be after him under the sun? I mean, the answer would only be God. And even then, it's probably rhetorical in the sense of you're going to die and that's it. I don't know what comes after you. So you think you're going to dispute with God? So you think you're going to control the times and the seasons? So you think you're going to be part of a human race that can somehow superabound beyond God? So you think the human race will ever evolve to a point of Ah, we are satisfied. We've made it. Utopia, paradise. It's the end of all wars. And in fact, we didn't even need God. Look, we've recreated Eden on earth. Look, says Solomon, you don't even know what's going to come after you when you die. God does. All right, so it's a bucket of cold water on our dreams of modernity. Any thoughts or... uh, Questions at this point? Okay, we've got one all the way in the back and then Jim all the way up in the front here. To me, this um, is echoing the concept of blackness and darkness revealing light. Uh, We ran across this concept this week that C.S. Lewis found that as he was an atheist, nothing satisfied him. And he concluded that he must be made for another world because nothing here was working. Yeah. And then he was driven to faith in Christ. Yeah. Um, and Augustine says something similar. Uh, the soul of man is restless until it finds its rest in God. At least I think it's attributed to Augustine. And that's the same sort of idea. You know, um, it's, it's akin to verse 9, the wandering of the appetite. Restless, always seeking, never having. Always learning, never being filled with wisdom. Um, only when we find our rest and our fulfillment in God um, do we have an answer to Ecclesiastes. Only when we find an answering to the hungering of our mouths and our slavery to them Only when we find an answer in the supper that Jesus gives do we have any answer worth anything. Even then it's a striving, isn't it? Yeah, it's a constant battle. As Paul says, who will save me from this this body of death? 
we're waiting for deliverance from this body and from these doubts to where our life subsists in God and God alone, and that's evident to us. Thanks for your comment. Okay, one more back that way. Um, Obviously, there's some societies even today that just are working from one meal to the next, and they don't really have the time to contemplate things like we have the luxury to do. And I I go back to your timeline um, scenario that you were talking about. And as we plan for our future, whether tomorrow or next week or next year or retirement or for the next generation, I just would like to hear your comments on planning in light of Ecclesiastes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Ecclesiastes puts it very bleakly, of course, you know, um, and really hems us in on all sides. You're planning everything, and you're going to give it to their to your children as if that has any meaning. Their lives are meaningless, you know. Um, so it really, and in fact, it's that sort of thinking that took Christians not that long ago, and maybe even some still today, who basically said, "Look, the kids are going to get this and this and this, but the majority of it's going to the answer to Ecclesiastes, which is Christ and His gospel and His sacraments, that ministry, that work." So it wasn't that long ago that Christians would say, you know what really matters? My kids can take care of their own, in fact, of their of themselves. In fact, God's going to take care of them. What I'm going to do is choose to put this money in service to Him. Now, you have to be a little careful with that. Because the Pharisees tried to do something similar, and Jesus called them out on it. Remember, uh, man would take what he has, and, and uh, instead of giving it to his parents to care for them, he would give it to God. This was a man-made thing that the priests came up with. Corbin, they called it. This is the ultimate righteousness. What you would give to your parents, right? Because they are, they're older, they can't work for themselves. What you would provide for them, give it instead to your heavenly Father, to God. This is much more holy. And Jesus comes and says, that's a man-made rule. And in fact, with that man-made rule, you've subverted the fourth commandment itself, that you are to honor mother and father. All right, so uh, I don't think it's a white and black thing where the answer is simply, thus saith the modern-day Pharisees, give all your inheritance to the church and none for your children. I don't think it's that easy. Even so, I think uh, avoiding that extreme, the other extreme is I'm going to live for my kids and everything I have have is going to go to my kids. Because Ecclesiastes says, wait a minute, have you thought that through? Have you, want, have you asked yourself why you're depriving yourself of joy for the sake of others who haven't toiled for it? No. Um, that there might even be blessing in that toil? Uh, do, do we as a society have a, a, general, uh, a generally positive view of trust fund kids? No. In fact, they're sort of an icon. And, a, and Is there anything wrong innately with a trust? No. But more often than not, what does a trust do to kids? Yeah, lazy, spoils them. Okay, well, society at large has acknowledged that's true, not in every case, certainly not, but in enough cases that it's become a stereotype. So we ought to reconsider, in light of Ecclesiastes, if we're going to just simply, if the end of our life, if the end of our toil, if what it was all for was to create a trust fund kid, is that toil well spent? (laughs) I think society, even American society at large, would say, no, it wasn't. Doesn't. You know, you have an extreme example of that, I think, in Warren Buffett, don't you? 
He's not going to give anything to his kids. And I think that that's too far personally, but that's my, not thus saith the Lord. I think that's too far personally. And yet the sentiment is well taken that he wants his own kids to work, his own kids to toil. His own, and he, I don't know if he's a faithful man or not, but if he was, he'd, he'd understand that God will provide for them too. All right, so I don't know. I hope that that was vague enough. Keep me out of trouble. <laughs> And uh, in, in verse 7, it says, all the toil of man is for his mouth. Yeah. Um, that was certainly true in the days of Solomon because most people lived in an agrarian economy. Mm-hmm. All their toil was for their mouth. But yet, he says, we still have an appetite. So is the appetite God-given? It has to be. We all strive for more. Yeah. It's God-given in the way of curse. Oh. Yeah. It's a curse to be hungry. You know, and, and of course, that's written into the original uh, Edenic curse. Um, you know, uh, by the sweat of your brow, you shall eat. I mean, do you see the change there? Instead of, hey, go pluck the gifts I've freely given. <laughs> now, by the sweat of your brow, you shall eat. I mean, right there is exactly what Solomon's saying, that all the toil of man is for his mouth. All the sweat of your brow is to satisfy your hunger. Uh, we become slaves to ourselves in that regard. So again, the answer is going to be in the Lord's Supper. And ultimately, uh, as the Lord's Supper itself is a foreshadowing of the new heavens and the new earth, where again, we're going to have those conditions of Eden. It's not like if you forget to eat in paradise for a few days, you're going to suddenly die. Oh, they lost eternal life. Forgot to eat. Um, It's not like that at all. Eating is restored back to pure joy, pure gift, and the connection between survival in eating is severed and the mouth is satisfied because it's satisfied in the gifts of the Lord whereas the curse is precisely that it is not satisfied you know and your mouth of course perishes too so think of it that think of that verse that way too a toil of a man is for his mouth and a mouth is going to die so all your laboring is ultimately for futility it's all buried in the grave with nothing to show All right, well, we're going to get into some further weirdness uh, next chapter where we're going to read, for example, here's your cliffhanger. Uh, Look at verse 2 of chapter 7. No, actually, look at the last line of of verse 1. And the day of death is better than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of pancakes. All right. There it is. The Lord be with you. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Until tomorrow, may God virtually bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and by Carrie's death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>